All right, good morning, Harvest Church. So glad to see you all here. My name is Jeremy. I'm the youth pastor here at Harvest Church, if I haven't met you yet. Um, get the pleasure of, of bringing the word again this morning. Um, you know, this week was a little, was a little, it was a little heavy, a little unexpected. Um, Pastor Curtis was supposed to be teaching again this Sunday. Was, I was going to take two weeks, and he was going to take two weeks. And then uh, Monday morning, I got the text from him saying that uh, his grandma, uh, Margaret Miller, had passed away and that she was, after 47 years uh, in, a, in a wheelchair, she was now walking on the streets of gold. So, uh, so we, as staff, uh, we, we, we wanted to allow the whole Henry family to really take that time to grieve and, and lament, so we've um, done our best to cover our bases, hence Seth um, being able to step in and, and do announcements. It's the first time he's ever done that, so it's, that, was, that was good, but um, it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a little bit of a crazy week, but it's, it's been good. We're, you know, we're just praying for and over the Henrys. Uh, there's been, it's just a hard, hard week. For, for those of you who knew Margaret, she was, she impacted everyone around her. So we're, there's going to be a, a memorial service this Wednesday at 1 p.m. here in the worship center, and it's, uh, it's going to be, I, I believe it's going to be a packed house. She, she impacted a lot of lives. So uh, that will be this Wednesday. Um, so let me, let me pray for our time here. Let's pray for the Henry family as we just lift them up uh, to the Lord. So Heavenly Father, we, we just lift up the Henry family to you, Lord, the Miller family, Lord, as, as Margaret has passed away and gone into glory, receiving her inheritance from you and, and hearing the words, good, well, well done, good and faithful servant, come into your reward, Lord. Uh, yet that leaves us here her family at home, just, just grieving for her loss and, and all the ways that she touched their lives daily, Lord. So, Lord, we pray that to each, each tear that, that they, the family cries, Lord, you would capture that in a bottle, Lord. You, you, you don't forget our tears, Lord. We're so grateful for that. So you'd comfort and, and, bring, and bring them your peace, Lord, a peace that passes all understanding. Guard their hearts and their minds, Lord, uh, during this time. And Lord, for us here Sunday morning, open up, this, open up your word, Lord. Will you just breathe your, your breath on us, Lord? You would speak to us, challenge us, encourage us, uh, do what you, only you can do, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I'm not good at picking sermon title names, uh, but I felt a little inspired this week. And it kind of came to me uh, with, through a conversation with my wife's grandpa, but uh, I wanted to name this title, The Bible as a Hardware Store. The Bible as a Hardware Store. And that'll make sense in a moment. Well, as I was telling that to Tim, our, our tech director, he, he was like, oh, wait, that totally makes sense. And he said, you know, I just got this flyer in the mail. And the flyer in the mail from Ace, I don't know if you get these as well, but it says... Um, around the block, what you need in stock with people who know their stuff. And isn't that what the Bible is? Isn't that what the Word of God is? That we can go to the Word of God and just mine the depths and, and like, what do I do with this, Lord? How do I, how do I, how do I navigate this, this situation? And, and that is all found in the Word of God. In fact, uh, Curtis did a, such a great job opening up Second Peter chapter 1 when he, when, he's, when he read these words and that's 
Verse 2 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So the word of God is that hardware store that we go to. And let me just tell you about hardware stores because I have a little bit of a history with hardware stores. I love hardware stores. The Woodlake Hardware Store, as in my childhood, was the place of dreams. So yeah, we were a small town, 6,000 people, but we had the Woodlake Hardware Store founded in 1917, and there it was on Main Street. I'm talking like a, a city that has one four-way st- you know, stop sign. Uh, no traffic lights when I was growing up, but we had the Woodlake Hardware Store, and I spent countless hours there as a kid walking the aisles looking at the BB guns, Ask, uh, yeah, BB guns, asking, asking if I could like look at the knives behind the counter, you know, they, they kept those behind the counter, uh, looking through every aisle. I mean, we just perused the store. I, I, I think the people that work there would often wonder, are these kids stealing from us? We never did, but like we were just there. We just, I mean, we were in the back of the store. We just, we wanted to see what was there at the hardware store. And the way my mind works is kind of like the Dewey Decimal System. Anybody know what the Dewey Decimal System is? So if you're a digital uh, immigrant, then you know the Dewey Decimal System. That's the, the cards at the library that before the computers enter the story, you, have, you would have to go through the Dewey Decimal System and, and find the books that were in the catalog of the library. And that's the way my brain works, is that I kind of walk through life as it's a hardware store. You know, a hardware store, if you want to you fix something, you go there and you have to like search the aisles. Well, if you already know the aisles, know what's there, and already cataloged in your head, it, it makes it easier to fix things. And that's kind of the way I see the Bible, is I look at the Bible as it is a hardware store, as, as I kind of catalog these things in my head. And so there's scriptures that I'll, I'll take like 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 that I've, I, I've taken as my promise. And so I do a decimal catalog that in my promises. These are promises that if we want to, everything that pertains to life and godliness that's found in the knowledge of Jesus. So I, I, I catalog that away. If I, there's, there's sections of scripture that I've kind of uh, question mark, like how does this fit into the narrative as a whole? How does this fit into the Bible? And I'll, and I'll put that in my little, you know, question mark part of the catalog. And so that's what I do when I kind of look at the Bible. And what's so fascinating is this, this passage of Scripture that Peter is now, uh, that we're going to elaborate on, that, that we're going to look at today. Peter is doing that. He's pulling from these different events, and he's touching these different things that, ha- that impact our life. And so Peter really is, he's giving his, he's, he's approaching his death. He knows that. And he's giving his final will and testament. His final will and testament. So open up your Bibles, if you can, to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. In 1 Peter, Peter focuses on uh, the statement where Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. If you look at 1 Peter, he, he references that portion, Matthew chapter 16, a lot. It's kind of hidden in the background, but it's there nonetheless. In 2 Peter, uh, what, he's going, what he's looking back is he's looking back to the transfiguration. 
And we're going to get into that as we, as we study the scripture. So Peter's now saying, he says, for this reason, and, and, and we always have to remember, why, why is that there? So for this reason, let's look at the, the prior verses to that, starting in verse 9. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9 says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Those are the seven different character traits that, that we add to our faith. Not that faith, faith alone is what saves us, but it's these things that we want to add, these virtues that we want to add to our faith as we mature as believers. So these things... Whoever lacks these things is short-sighted. Therefore, verse 10, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and your election sure, for if you do these things, you will, be, you will never stumble, for such an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that kingdom that Margaret is now walking in. That's what's waiting for us. So for this reason, uh, Paul, uh, Peter is now going to say, for this reason, I will not be negligent. I will not be careless to remind you. Like any good teacher, he's, he's letting us know that we all need reminders. It's not just for the kids. It's not just for the Sunday school. We all need reminders. And so he's going to remind us of these things that though you know and are established in the present truth, he wants us to be, and he wants the, the readers of this letter to be established in this truth. The same truth that Paul talked about in his letter to second in his letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have uh, itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And, and they will turn their ears from the truth and be turned aside into fables or into myths. And so people will, will wander away from the truth. The truth will settle down and they'll feel like they've moved past it and they'll search for those people who just kind of tickle their ears, who, who, who they want to hear what they want to hear and they, not wanna, they don't want to stay on that establishment of truth. And so they've wandered away. He also, Paul also writes to Titus, in Titus chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may uh, be sound in the, in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables or commandments of men who turn from the truth. So we don't want to turn from the truth. So we want to be planted, we want to be established on the truth of the Word of God. Because that is opposed to the heresies that, were, that, Paul, that Peter is, is going to soon get into that, that were beginning to work their way into the church, these things. And it was very much, just as much then as it is now, these different doctrines that, that come into the church uh, that, that have a chance to remove us from that, that uh, foundation of truth. Even in the first and second century, these things were right there at hand. Uh, Jesus' apostle John, was, John was Jesus' apostle, and then uh, John discipled a man named Polycarp. A lot of Polycarp's writings are lost to us, unfortunately, to history, uh, but Polycarp discipled a man named Irenaeus of Lyons. And, he, and in Irenaeus of Lyons, in the early uh, 
what, about 180 AD, wrote a, um, a manuscript called um, A Treatise to the Heresies, Against All Heresies. And, he, and he, he was concerned about these things that were slipping into the church. One of those things that was slipping into the church in, during that century was that the God was different, Old Testament God was different than the New Testament God. And that sounds familiar because that's happening even within the church today. In fact, there's a, a book, I would, I would, another book I would highly recommend. I didn't hi- recommend it to first service, but it's called um, Another Gospel by Alyssa Childers. And it talks about the progressive church movement away from the true gospel. So this truth we need to be established on, we need to know it so that when we begin to hear these things, we, we, we know the truth so we can stand on that. And, Paul, and Peter was just as much concerned about that in the first century and the reason for his writing 2 Peter. So verse 13 says, yes, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent to stir, up, stir you up by reminding you. And I think we need that every once in a while. You get a nice hot cup of hot chocolate. You forget about it for, for a few minutes, and then you, let it, you, sit, you set it to the side, and you come back to it, and you sip it, and you're like, ooh, that tastes really weak. Well, that's because the mixture has fallen and needs to be stirred up. And so that truth needs to be stirred up in, in us as well. We, we need to bring these things up. And, and so Paul is writing, or Peter, sorry, Peter and Paul, they're going to get confused. But Peter is writing this to stir us up in this, in this, this truth. But he says, as long as I'm in this tent... And that tent is the same word as, that's used for tabernacle as well. It's a temporary dwelling place. It's, it's uh, before the temple was established in Jerusalem as, they, as the exodus marched out of Egypt and towards the promised land, they carried with them the tabernacle of God. And that was that temporary dwelling place until God set up his, his temple in Jerusalem. So this tabernacle, it's going to come back again when we talk more about the transfiguration. But it seems like that's such a good theme that Peter refers back to as this pilgrim theme that we're just passing through. This life is just kind of fading, and, and it's true. And now, and now being 43, I can look back at my years when I was in my 20s, and I'm like, man, this tent doesn't work the same. It doesn't hold as much, you know, hold off as much water as it used to. You see, um, in my early 20s, my, my, my grandmother passed away as well. She lived out in Colorado, not, not nearly the same kind of impact that Margaret had on her grandkids. But uh, for her passing away, her inheritance, I, I received a whole whopping $500. And $500 at the time wasn't enough to pay a down payment in, in a, for a house in Santa Barbara. So I really debated, okay, what do you do what do I do with a $500 inheritance? So I really pondered over that. So I bought a tent. I couldn't buy a house, so I bought a tent. And what's neat about that tent is I still use it to this day. In fact, when I've taken students out backpacking, they unknowingly know that they're taking my grandma's tent out. And yes, it doesn't work as well as it used to, but it's a good reminder for me that we're just passing through. This, this earthly tent will just no longer be needed. Peter knows that. 
So he's reminding us. So verse 14 says, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Peter has such a graceful way of knowing that his end is coming and he's okay with it. He's at peace with it. I think partly because he knew the will of God. He knew this was the plan and purpose. And so he's trying to just prepare his people for that. Peter, this is not the first situation. So Peter is currently in in a prison in Rome uh, awaiting his death by Nero. But this isn't, isn't the first time he's been in danger before. Acts chapter 12 tells us the first time, or well, one of, the, one of the other times that he was thrown in prison. And that time, in Acts chapter 12, he's thrown in a dungeon. He has uh, two guards on both sides. He's chained to two, two different guys. And uh, James, one of the other apostles, has just been put to death. And Peter is awaiting the same sentence. But Peter, in that situation, he, he was sleeping. How did Peter sleep between two guards, probably no mattress, you know, no, comfort, no comforts, in a dungeon, awaiting when one of his best friends is just, how was he able to sleep? He was able to sleep, I believe, because Jesus in John chapter 21 had told him how he would, how he would meet his maker, Right? As Peter was being restored after denying Jesus three times before his death and after Jesus' resurrection, uh, he meets with Peter specifically to restore him. And, and, And he asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time, Peter says, yes, Lord, yes. And he says, well, feed my sheep. The last time, he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes. He said, feed my sheep. When you were young, you put on what you wanted and you went where you wanted. He says, when you're old, people will put on you and and will take you to a place that you do not want. So Peter realized that Jesus was saying, you're going to be an old, you're going to die an old man. And that's my plan for you, Peter. So when Peter, just a few years later, is thrown in prison and has the threat of death, he's like, I can go to sleep. I know when I'm going to meet my maker. This isn't it. I'm I'm not old yet. I will survive this. And that's when the angels mysteriously, miraculously touched him and had to like shake him to wake him up. He was in such a deep sleep and pulled him out of that prison. Uh, Radical story. So Peter knows that his time is now coming and that time is coming short. So verse 15 says, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease, after my exodon in the Greek, after my exodus. And that, was, is that is what we have before us, this reminder from him, written down, inspired by the Spirit. And he says, after these things, after my decease. That, that Greek word, like I just said, is, is, the, is the word exodon. That speaks of exodus. At the, transfig, at the Mount of Transfiguration, it's recorded, in all, it's recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke gets specifically about what they talked about. You see, Elijah and Moses, how, is, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses that was on the Mount of Transfiguration? I, I, did they come with name tags? Did they know from some picture graph? I don't know, like, I'm just, I'm still like, that's one of the questions I want to ask when I get it. How, how'd you know it was Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses and Elijah gather around Jesus and they speak, they, the same Greek word is used. They speak of Jesus' exodon or decease, 
which was to happen in Jerusalem. That what, on the Mount of Transfiguration, that's what they discussed was Jesus coming to cease. Jesus coming exodus on Jerusalem. It was like a little team huddle. And so there they were. So Peter had this sense of peace for where he was headed and how he was going to die. I think it's a good place to stop and, and look and think about death and how we handle death as Christians. Because Paul said, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And Paul desired so much to be absent from the body. To be, he wanted to be present with the Lord, but he realized his, his departure there would mean that, that he hadn't completed his work here, that God still had him here for work to do. And that was to pour into the saints that were there. So he said, it is better for you that I stay, but man, I really want to be there because that's the better place. That's our future inheritance. That's what we have. And so as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, knowing that there's a coming resurrection, we're caught in this place of the goodness of God and, and still hard times in life and going through, walking through these valleys of shadow of death. And so how do we handle that? I, and I, I, I think sadly for myself and so many of us, we just don't know how to handle grief. We don't know how to handle when other people are going through grief. And that either causes us to kind of do two polar opposites. Either we say too much or maybe we say too little. And I think there's a time and a place for both of those things. It was about a year, was it a year, maybe two years ago that I got hit with just a wave of grief. So my dad passed away 19, almost 19 years ago. My mom followed him up to heaven 12, 12 years ago, seven years after my dad had passed away. And the waves of grief, especially in the beginning, are, are, are so heavy. They're just like you can't even take a breath. It just doesn't feel like you have room to come up and take a breath and then and then there'll be moments where you'll, you'll realize, oh man, they're in a better place. They're out of pain. They're out of suffering. You can just, you can take a, deal, a breath for a second. And then the, the, the waves of grief will hit and you're drowning again. And those, they just go up and down. And yet, over time, I've, I've found that they get smaller and smaller. I, I'm, the, the memory and the missing is there. There's, there's still times, strange times I want to call up my dad. After 19 years, I still want to call him up and be like, hey, dad, what? Oh, no, I, I can't call him on the phone. I can't do that. And it was two years ago that rocked me, and, and this wave of grief hit me over my mom's death, and I, I, I don't know if it was kind of delayed grief, or, but it hit me hard. I, I, I sought out a counselor, and he was able to re, you know, recommend a few good books, but one of the books he recommended was uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, and it's, it's, it's talking about biblical lament. The author, Mark Vogrup, says that uh, lament is how we live life between the poles of a, a, a hard life and the goodness of God. Lament is how we learn to live between the the poles of a hard life and the goodness of God, and I think that's so good because we see the biblical characters, how they wrestle and how they deal with grief and sorrow and loss. David was so good at that. Psalm 13 is just, I mean, just one of the ones that we can go to. It's, it's, a, it's a good 
pointer for how we deal with loss, how we deal with grief, especially with ourselves, but also with others. Psalm 13, verse 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget, forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear, uh, hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy says, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Can you imagine if the psalm just ended, ended there? just ended in his grief and his sorrow, crying out to the God, does God even hear me? But every song of lament, every biblical character, always, it always turns out, there's always a transition. You pray out to God your heartaches, your pains, your sorrows. But at some point in, in, the, biblical, in the Bible, it always comes back around. We always transition to the goodness of God. Listen to how he, he finishes off his psalm. Verse five says, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We take our eyes off the pain, the sorrow, and we look to God because he is the giver of all goodness. It's that living between the poles of a hard life and a good God. That is biblical lament, biblical grief. And these things take time. Mark also said this in the book, he quoted, he says, give people permission to wrestle with sorrow instead of rushing to end it. We can be gracious with the Henry family as they wrestle through these sorrows and, and I know that each and every one of us has been rocked by some different amount of pain, sorrow, hurts, grief, death of death of dreams, death of hopes or death of what we thought would come. There, Sorrow and grief has such, so many levels. So give people permission to wrestle with those instead of rushing to end it. After the loss of my parents, you know, there were, there were people that were trying to come alongside and support us as family. They're trying to relate to where we are. And uh, I... I I thought, man, maybe, maybe someday if I, if I ever start a grief ministry, like reaching out to those who have been dealt a really hard hand or have felt grief or have had that loss, I would name it seven days of silence because Job knew grief, he knew sorrow, he knew pain, he knew loss. And the best thing that his friends did is they came and sat with him for seven days in silence. Seven days of silence. It's when they opened their mouth <laughs> that it all went downhill. And I, could, I, and I still feel the sting of some of those things, too. And, and people in their best intentions saying things try, to try to help or, or giving books or just all different things that we try to help somebody in grief when we don't. Sometimes the best thing is just to sit with them, just say, I'm here, I'm praying for you. Whatever I can do, let me know. We've tried to give the Henry family that space as staff and take on as much as we can. It's like four people in the office this week. It was, it was a little wild, but we wanted to give that. You know, I can remember somebody coming up after uh, one of the memorial servants. I, I, don't, I don't remember if it was my dad or my mom, but they, they were trying to relate, and I, and, I, and I realized that in the moment, but it really stung. They said, you know, 
I know what you're going through. I just lost my dog. And that, I mean, I, 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 thank you. I, 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 I totally appreciate it, but oh, that hurt. That's, that's not the same. So it is. Biblical lament is wrestling between the goodness of God and, and a hard life. But it doesn't end there. It always ends with God's goodness. So let's continue in verse 16. Peter's now going to take on some directly on the people that are speaking out against him. This section is titled, The Trustworthy Prophetic Word Versus the Gnostics with Their Knowledge. So verse 16 says, Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So when Peter says we did not follow cunningly devised fables, that's what the heretics at that time were, were telling Peter. Peter. Peter, you just made these stories up. These are just fables. These are just myths. These, are, these were made up by you. You didn't actually see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. That's just something you made up. But Peter's saying, no, we did not follow these cunningly devised fables as you say when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Peter wasn't alone in that because there was three other disciples that were there, Peter, James, and John, up on that Mount of Transfiguration. And that is essential in the Old Testament. The Old Testament word was by the mouth of at least two people. You had to at least two eyewitnesses for something to be true. And so the Bible is amazing because it was written during the time of eyewitnesses. So I, other eyewitnesses could either verify or deny that truth. And the Bible is this incredible book. And I love how Vody Bauckham said it. He said it best when, I, when he summarized what the Bible is. This, was, this quote inspired me. I showed it to my youth group. Uh, one of those youth group students showed it to a student that he, that's going to his college, and that student last, or last, this last week just accepted Christ. So it's amazing to see what, what God is doing. But Vody Bauckham says this. He says, a the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, and they report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings were of divine origin rather than human origin. I mean, that's, that's a concise of what the Bible is. Eyewitnesses, reliable, historic prophecies, the prophetic, it's amazing. So as we jump now into the, the, the remainder of this chapter where, where Peter's really going to be pulling from that uh, Dewey Decimal System, that card system of the, the, the transfiguration. Let's go to Matthew uh, chapter 17 uh, and, and read the account there. And really it starts in 16 because Jesus prophesied this coming event of, at the Mount of Transfiguration. So Matthew chapter 16 verse 28 says, Jesus said, I assur assuredly I say to you there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Verse seven, uh, chapter 17, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. I mean, Jesus' humanity could not contain his deity any longer, and it just shone through, and it was like he was wearing the brightest of white clothing, and he became this, uh, just, just this supernatural just shone right through. And yet in that state, Jesus was still began talking with Moses and Elijah. And it says, verse 4 says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Peter always wanted to put his foot in his mouth and get it in there. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, three tents. If you wish, let us make uh, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, while Peter was still speaking, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And the disciples heard it. They fell at their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. Wow. What was it like to be there, to see Jesus' humanity pull back and see his full, full, full transfiguration of Jesus? So back in 2 Peter, Peter is referencing that, that, that this was something he eyewitnessed, and he was a firsthand. He's not only an apostle, but he's an eyewitness. He was one of the three that witnessed this majestic moment. He says, verse 17, for he received, speaking again of this account, he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. Now, in the Bible, glory is only given to God, not to a man. But that, that the heavenly Father bestowed that on his, his, his Son shows that God the Father and God the Son are one, that they're both one. So when he God the Father honoring glory in such a voice, he came to him in the excellent glory, and he said this, the same as the baptism account, but he said this, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's Peter's account of what he heard and what he saw. And he says, and we heard this voice which came down from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. It's not a cunningly devised fable. This is the truth that I witnessed on the holy mountain. Verse 19, and so we have this prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light in that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What he's saying is that truth especially the prophetic truth, is a beacon of light in a dark place. And the, what's one of the things that separates the Bible from any other book out there is the, the amount of prophecies, the amount of foretelling of, of events that it speaks of. Just on the coming Messiah, there's over 300 prophecies just for the Messiah. So the fact alone that Jesus would fulfill those is, is the prophetic word confirmed. And Peter is saying, you guys know this because you have your Old Testament and now we, we balance it out with the New Testament and we have the prophetic word confirmed. I love how when math and science kind of get into this because Peter Stoner, and I think Pastor Steve has mentioned this before, but Peter Stoner uh, in his book called Science Speaks, uh, mathematician, he, he took probabilities and he, 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 he figured out from probabilities, he took eight 
prophecies about the coming Messiah, and he said, How, what are the odds that one man, this man Jesus, would fulfill just eight of the 300 prophecies? And so each, to each one, you know, the really simple, kind of easy to pick ones, like um, 30 piece, Jesus being sold for 30 pieces of silver, being pierced in his hands, um, the timing of his arrival, coming in to Jerusalem, riding on a, on a colt, just those kind of simple that we, we, we've taught in Sunday school or been taught in Sunday school our whole life. Those eight. And he ascribed a probability for each one of those things. And then he added those probabilities up. And what he found is that Jesus fulfilling just one in eight probabilities was a probability of one in 10 to the 17th power. That doesn't mean a lot. So let me, let me put it this way. And Peter Stoner does this in his book. He says... That is like making a bucket out of the state of, uh, state of Texas. Take the state of Texas, fill it up two feet high with silver dollars. Take, those silver, take one of those silver dollars, spray paint it pink or whatever color you want to choose, and throw it out there in the middle of the state of Texas, stir everything up, and then send somebody out blindfolded to walk until they choose to pick up one, one silver dollar, and that is the probability of one in 10 to the 17th power. The state of Texas, two feet deep in silver dollars. That's pretty phenomenal. That's only for eight of the 300 biblical prophecies about the Messiah. So let's just, he did the same numbers, he went up to 16. What if you just take Jesus fulfilling 16 of the prophecies from the Old Testament? Just 16, right? What, what is that? You know, you fill up the U.S., fill up the world. No, he found that Jesus fulfilling just eight more, so a total of 16 would be 10 to the 45, 45th power. So what is that? Just eight of the biblical prophecies, 10 to the 45th. That is like t making a ball of silver dollars because it doesn't, it, you couldn't contain it on the earth. That is taking silver dollars and going all the way out to Pluto from the sun. The sun to Pluto, filling up with silver dollars, sending somebody out in an astronaut suit with a, with a blindfold and having them pick at random one silver dollar and it being the exact silver dollar that you painted pur purple or pink or whatever. That is astronomically, the probability for that is unbelievable, and that's just 16. Can you imagine all 300 biblical prophecies? Beyond measure. Jesus was the prophetic word confirmed, and we do well to heed that. Verse 20 says, knowing this first that, that um, or primarily, knowing this first or primarily, that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. These things don't come because guys had a bad burrito and they had a little upset stomach and they wrote down some things. It doesn't come because they felt like, well, I'll just write this down. No, these came, things came because they were moved, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that is the way... Scripture looks at the biblical, the Bible is written, authored by the Holy Spirit using the different upbringings and different aspects of the biblical writers. It's like this. So, we, uh, anybody know what sleep training is for toddlers? <laughs> so, yeah, so Winnie, she's, we love Winnie, she, but she, I love to tell Winnie stories. 
So Winnie, my youngest, she's almost three, and um, for some reason, we've let it go on. She cries for a bottle in the middle of the night, still, to this day. And, and most nights, she won't let me go in to comfort her. It has to be my wife. So that's pretty, that's pretty tiring for my wife. Um, and she, she can't have regular milk in her bottle, so she, we, we have this milk substitute called Ripple. I realized that used to be a, a wine drink that I was told first service. Uh, it's not that. It's, it's a milk substitute. But she, she has this habit of yelling in the middle of the night, Mama, I want Ripple! <laughs> and it's like, oh my goodness. And, and so we've, we've kind of catered to that, like just sleep deprived, all that stuff. So finally we're like, okay, we got to cut this off. We, she, we have to sleep train her. We have to teach her how to put herself back to sleep because she wants the bottle and the mom to like help put her to sleep. So we're like, okay, we got to tell her that she, you know, she's almost three. She can put herself back to sleep. So we started that last week and uh, it was, I mean, as you imagine, it's a nightmare. So she woke, woke up, I think at 1 a.m. and was just screaming for her bottle and, and mom. And so I got to take that place. Take the, take the little baby monitor out, and I went out into the living room, and I'd check in every 5, 10, 15 minutes, like, hey, Winnie, it's okay, you can lay down. She wasn't having that. Uh, so it went on about three hours, I think. I think it was about two hours, three hours. It was, it was, it was, a, good, it was a good chunk of time. So what am I going to do? Middle of the night, I turn on the TV, turn to Netflix. Like, I just need a documentary. I need something to keep me awake. I see this story on, on, on Netflix called Untold, The Race of the Century. I'm like, well, I want to know the race of the century. Uh, and it's about the 1983 America's Cup. And it had me gripped. In fact, there's a few times I forgot to do a pop-in to Winnie because I was like, oh. <laughs> so in 1983, the New York Yacht Club, the America's Cup, had won 132 years in a row. This, this 32... Uh, uh, um, no, 12-meter yacht, I was going to say 36, but 12-meter yachts were having this race for, held consecutively for over 132 years. I, I, that was like predates the Civil War, okay? So this is the 1983 America's Cup. In it, the New York Yacht Club had won 132 years consecutively. That year, John Bertrand decided that he was from Australia. He decided that he was going to do his best to challenge the Americans. He just, he grew up sailing. He was like, I, I'm going to figure a way to, out to do this. Each country has to design and build their own boat. So the U.S. had designed their boat. I believe it was called the Liberty. I forgot what the, the, the Australian's boat was named. Uh, but they had a boat designer named Ben Lexkin, and he came up with a whole new keel, this whole new kind of Stupor stealth technology keel. It was a winged keel. And 132 years straight of victory. These, these yachts are, have no motor of themselves. It's only harnessed by the wind. It's only moved by the power of the wind and their ability to harness it. And in, down to the last race, super exciting, Seven races, to, he had to win at least four. John Bertrand beats out by 41 seconds the New York Yacht Club. And it was, a, I mean, it was just this phenomenal design. Ben, the designer, only had three years of schooling in junior high and one year of high school, I believe. And he, he designed this boat with his new, crazy new design. Why am I bringing up yachting and sailing? Because... It says that holy men of God spoke as they were moved or as they were carried along by the ship with its sail. 
Peter, as, as the apostle, as the, as the writer of this, of this letter, he was moved by the Holy Spirit to write these things down, to write down scripture so that we have it today. In some smaller sense, we can be moved and we can be carried by the Holy Spirit as we have no power in ourselves like the yachts do. But when we open up our sails and allow the Holy Spirit to move through us, we can do amazing, mighty works in the lives around us. All those gifts that God has given us, he says the, the, the power came upon the apostles to, 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 to be witnesses. That's the same Holy Spirit that works and carries and moves in our own lives to make an impact on the world for Christ. That same Spirit so I'd say my encouragement for you is open up those sails. Let the Spirit of God move and use the giftings that he's given you to stir up this, to stir up and to use in our world. In our world that's grown ever and ever darker and needs that beacon of truth. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, you are good. Jesus, only you can bring comfort. Only you can bring healing. Only you can use, Jesus, broken vessels like us. Oh, Lord, empower us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, to go out and use the gifts that you've given us, Lord, to impact a, a world that's growing darker and darker day by day, Lord, but is searching and seeking for the truth, something to be established on, Lord Jesus. We have you as our rock, Lord. Help us point others to that rock upon which we stand. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen.